The Energy Gang is brought to you by Aurora Solar. If you could ask 20 experts in the solar industry one question, what would it be? Well, this June, you'll have the opportunity to do that. Join over 4,000 solar professionals on June 8th and 9th for Aurora Solar's second annual virtual summit. You're going to hear from and interact with industry experts, policymakers, sales experts, and more. So get your questions ready. Save your spot at empower.aurorasolar.com energygang or go to the show notes to sign up. The Energy Gang is also brought to you by Enel X, the global leader in advanced energy solutions. Enel X serves large businesses, governments, utilities, as well as thousands of consumers in an effort to bring cleaner, smarter solutions to market and enable rapid decarbonization efforts at all levels of the economy. Learn more about what Enel X can do for your business at enelx.com. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then they transform. This week, a look at some positive trends guiding the utility sector. What are power providers leading the energy transition doing right? Then, how utilities will enable and benefit from Biden's big infrastructure push. Plus, the solar census, what will job growth look like in a post-pandemic world? Catherine Hamilton is my co-host. She's there in Arlington, Virginia. Catherine, how are you? Just doing great. Thank you. Many of our listeners may remember that you worked as a distribution engineer at a utility earlier in your career. Would we be at net zero in the electric utility industry if you just stayed at the utility? <laughs> I don't know if I had anything to do with that. There's no causation here. Um, but it's interesting because when I was at a utility back in the 80s, um, because we were really constrained with the growth of demand um, and we hadn't built out enough feeders, there was a lot of innovation. So what's been fun for me is to watch so much innovation come back into that sector. Well, as we drive toward that goal, a good thing we have our guest on the case, and that is Julia Hamm. Julia is the president and CEO of the Smart Electric Power Alliance, or SEPA. Hey, Julia, how are you? I am doing great, and I'm so excited to be back on the show, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Well, since the 90s, SEPA has been working to help utilities embrace the clean energy transition, and Julia has been at the helm of SEPA since 2004, and the organization had a handful of members. Now it has 700 utility members. Um, Julia, I think it's helpful to understand where SEPA sits in the Venn diagram of organizations. So I'm hoping you can help us understand like your mission, what you see happening out there in this space. Let me try to paint it for myself and you can react to it. On one side, you've got solar and wind industry trade groups. On the other side, you have maybe the specific utility trade group like the Edison Electric Institute, and you sit squarely in the middle, overlapping both sides. Is that a fair illustration? That is a very good way of describing it, Stephen. You know, we are actually not a trade association. So without getting too wonky, uh, you know, we are not a 501c6 trade association that exists to serve the interests of our members or a specific sector. We are a 501c3, actually sort of charitable, designated by the IRS as a charitable organization. So we exist to serve our mission but we happen to operate under a model where we have members who support that mission. And so, as you mentioned, we have over 700 utilities as members, but we also have more than 75% of the public, the state public utility commissions. We have hundreds of technology companies and other solution providers that want to work collaboratively with the utility industry. 
we have big the big tech companies, Amazon, Google, Microsoft are all members. So it really is a big tent ecosystem of stakeholders who are interested in working collaboratively to get to a carbon-free energy system and really focusing in on the power sector and what the power sector can do, but also acknowledging that the power sector intersects with the whole rest of the energy industry. And so helping to pull all of those pieces together. It's no secret on this show that we have been pretty critical of electric utilities over the history of of the program. The march of the clean energy industry is defined as much by its skirmishes and sometimes outright wars with utilities as its technological or business model victories. So in February, we talked about this Sierra Club report outlining um, utilities who were not doing very well on climate and clean energy goals. And this week, we're going to dig deeper into um, your SEPA rankings, what the best performing utilities are are doing well, and your 2021 utility transformation profile puts this these these responses from a survey of over 130 electric utilities and a ranking system together to figure out, okay, what are they doing correctly? What sets them above other power providers? And there are thousands of power companies. So that means different flavors of corporate goals and management styles and approaches to building clean energy. And we're going to try to understand what those are. We're also going to talk about why utility progress is a little bit more like change management than traditional Silicon Valley style disruption. Um, So Catherine, over to you on some context setting you basically work in the trenches sparring with a lot of utilities over policies. And I'm wondering, how would you describe the spectrum of utilities that you're working with and talking with on different policies? Stephen, I'm just trying to help them be their best selves. <laughs> uh, yeah, Aren't so, we all? <laughs> exactly. So um, let's just say that when we look at Julia's leaderboard, it's not the same group that's in the Sierra Club list of the worst of the utilities. It's just, it's a completely different list. And what I see out there is, are a couple of things. One is a need for leadership, very clear leadership. And Julia mentioned that over 70% of utilities have have made carbon-free goals. And that is true. And a lot of the utilities that have made carbon-free goals have tried to do something with it. But there are other ones who the parent company will set the goal and the child companies that are down in the States have absolutely no plans to for that outcome that the parent company has stated. So I think there is a, there are very different groupings. They're the, they're the ones who have made these big statements that do not really have a plan to execute on those or or don't have a real sense of where they how they want to get there. They think they want to get there and I believe that they want to get there. It's just a matter of like they don't have really they have the plans in place. And then there are other ones who have decided we're going to get there and here's how we're going to do it and we're going to have to you know, think in a much more innovative way. And we're going to have to partner differently with innovators. But I think that because of the culture of utilities, it takes a lot of really strong leadership to to really change and kind of shift the direction of a ship. Can, can I respond to a couple pieces of that one just to make sure it's clear? So, you know, the number I quoted, the 71%, is it's not actually... I wish it were 70 plus percent of utilities had carbon reduction goals. We're not there yet. But 71% of customers 
are served by a utility. So there, it's an important it's an important distinction. Oh, that is a that's a very good distinction. Thank yeah. you. Um, but I also just wanted to respond to the piece about the the parent companies, the holding companies having targets, and yet the operating companies' plans don't match. And it really ties together the two pieces of what you said because it does take a long time for things to happen within utilities. <laughs> so if a holding company sets a carbon-free or a net zero target, and then six months later, one of their operating companies submits a IRP that doesn't match, there, there actually is a reason for that, right? Because that IRP had, you know, developing that had been ongoing for a long time before the target was set by the parent. So it needs to get reconciled and we need to get to a place where the operating companies absolutely have concrete plans that are going to lead us to meeting those targets. But I want to make sure that for those who aren't seeped in the utility industry, they can see maybe some of the reasons why there is that misalignment. Shouldn't we hold them accountable? And and, and what are the methods for us to be able to, to do that, given that uh, sometimes misalignment? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to the regulatory process, and we can go down a deep rabbit hole on that one, right? <laughs> uh, but a, a lot of it is going to come back to, you know, how, and it is hard because those those IRP processes are so time intensive and resource intensive, not just for the utility, but for all of the, the stakeholders who are engaged in those regulatory proceedings. Um, but I don't know. I think, you know, maybe part of it is we need to think about the frequency of, you know, is there a, a less resource intensive way to have more frequent opportunities to update plans, to, you know, to make things more flexible so that the plans can be adjusted as new technologies become commercialized and affordable, as customers begin, you know, adopting technologies that uh, are getting integrated into the grid. I don't know. I'm just sort of riffing off the top of my head. But I'm, I'm curious to hear what, what Catherine thinks about that. <laughs> As a stakeholder who spends an awful lot of time in those proceedings, um, there, there are a couple of things. One is, um, I think, greater transparency, greater ability for stakeholders to actually participate and understand what's going on, um, a willingness for, I agree, flexibility would be great but a willingness for some of the utilities that are very entrenched and have a and have a culture that I actually think is going to take longer than one IRP cycle to change, um, that they are really able to work differently with innovators out there. And I think what has happened over the last few decades since I was at a utility is that innovation has become so much more democratized. People are are inventing things. You know, that are that are separate from the utility, but that could significantly impact the way utilities operate and the way customers engage with the utility. And I think utilities being more open to that kind of partnership, where where an innovator is not just seen as a vendor, like I'm going to buy a bunch of meters, and meters may be really important things to buy, but I'm going to actually partner with someone to transform the way I do business. And in your leaderboard that you have in your report, those a lot of those utilities are doing just that. They're opening their doors and they're saying, look, I want to work with these innovators because they may actually have better ideas than I do. I, you know, I just have to respond to say, you know, when I saw the results from the research that the SEPA team did, that was the number one thing that stood out to me was the 
in terms of looking at what differentiates the leaderboard utilities from the rest of the industry, the degree to which those utilities who have made the most progress are working outside the four walls of the utility is is very notable, right? They are partnering with startups. They have formalized partnerships with university, um, you know, with universities and other R and D institutions. So that that really is, I think, one of the key differentiators for those who are farthest ahead in their progress. So we've ad- we've addressed a bunch of factors that play into the leaderboard here. We touched on corporate management and corporate goal setting, corporate venture investments, procurement, and like how utilities are working with partners are going out and procuring a bunch of clean energy. So break down how these factors are coming together. What are the what are you grading specifically and putting those together to create what we're deeming a leadership utility? Well, we really looked at four big buckets. And and let me just back up a step and, and give people a sort of perspective on and a little more about this study. So last summer, summer of 2020, we surveyed the utility industry. We had more than 100 utilities participate that represent 63% of all customers in the US. So really good uh, participation. Obviously, a lot of large utilities participated. And what we did was we looked at what we called four dimensions of utility transformation. And those four dimensions are clean energy resources. And that's not just you know, how much of their delivered uh, electricity is renewables or, or carbon-free, other carbon-free resources like nuclear or else. Uh, but it also includes uh, looking at what the utility is doing in terms of integrating both uh, utility deployed and customer deployed uh, distributed energy resources and energy efficiency. So it's sort of a more holistic look at at how a utility is doing with its clean energy resources. The second bucket was on modern grid enablement. So that was both the the sort of people typically think about the technology things with, with grid mod. So it was, yes, what technology things is the utility deploying to modernize the grid, but equally important what things is the utility doing to change the way it plans and operates its grid to make sure that it is enabling um, this transition. And then the third dimension we looked at was the corporate leadership piece, which we've talked about a bit here, but what things is the utility doing to really embed clean and carbon reduction as a core part of its business as opposed to just something else it has to get done. And then the fourth dimension is a bucket that we called aligned actions and engagement. And that really looked at what things is the utility doing, uh, recognizing that, it, again, what we've already talked about, that a utility cannot get to carbon free by itself. It has to work in partnership, in collaboration. It has to uh, engage proactively with regulators, legislators, customers, environmental groups, all sorts of players have to be engaged. And the utility needs to be doing that in a proactive way. So what things is the utility doing proactively to create that engagement? So those were the four dimensions that we looked at, um, lots of different sort of subsets within those. Can we actually state 
the top utilities now because we've been talking about this conceptually and we haven't actually listed the utilities. So who are we talking about when we're talking about the top utilities in these categories? So the utilities just we did not we did not actually produce a ranking, although we did score utilities. We did not make those those scores or a ranking public, but we did publicize the 10 utilities who scored best. And so, and again, these are not in any ranked order. I'll, I'll share them with you in alphabetical order. So the 10 utilities that made what we're calling our leaderboard are Austin Energy, Con Ed of New York, Green Mountain Power, Holyoke Gas and Electric Department, which is a little tiny muni in Massachusetts, and it made our hearts warm to see a small utility make the list, uh, Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, Pacific Gas and Electric, Sacramento Municipal Utility District, San Diego Gas and Electric, Seattle City Light, and Southern California Edison. Catherine, what do you think of that list? Five are in California. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting list. And, and there are different kinds of utilities, although they're all utilities that I might have picked anyway, just thinking about the, the kinds of culture that they have, the leadership that they have, what they've been able to get done. Um, but you have those that are really large IOUs, like Pacific Gas and Electric, and then you have the tiny Holyoke one, and then you have you know, Con Ed that is decoupled, um, Seattle City Lights, you have a Muni. So it looks like a really broad spectrum. And so what's interesting to me, Julia, is to understand you have all these different types of utilities. What are some of the commonalities that they had that would put them on the leaderboard? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and let me just point out, so this is just by design, not by design, just how it all, how, how it all fell out. It's five in California, five elsewhere in the US. It is five investor-owned utilities and five public power utilities. And my favorite fact, which actually does not come, it's not stated in the report, but five of the utilities have female CEOs and five have male CEOs. So let's run through the outcome and what sets these utilities apart when we factor in those different categories. And then I want to touch on one factor related to corporate commitments and, and, and management style at these utilities. So just running through some of the top level results, if we take together these categories that you outlined, 90% of the leaderboard utilities have a 100% carbon reduction target compared to 43% of all of the utility respondents. 50% of leaderboard utilities have a retail supply with over half served by clean energy. And 70% of these utilities are you know, engaged on carbon reduction planning. Um, 90% have integrated dis- distribution planning processes in place compared with less than half of all the other respondents. So there's a dramatic difference between what they're doing and what what the other utilities who were surveyed are doing. You used a lot of the stats there, but I would I would summarize the key differentiators in sort of four statements. One is that the leaders, and when I say the leaders, it's not just the 10 that we named. There are many others who are doing some or or many of these things. But the first is that they're setting ambitious science-based targets with interim goals and detailed plans to achieve them, right? And so I think this is important to acknowledge, and you said it, 90% of the leaderboard utilities have adopted a 100% carbon reduction target compared to 43% of everyone else. And so it's important to recognize, listen, just because someone has a target doesn't mean that there's going to be action. So I understand that, that there may be exceptions. 
But generally, our takeaway from that is having a goal is important. All goals are not greenwashing, right? If you have an ambitious science-based target and you have detailed plans on how you're going to get there, what our data shows is that those who have that are making more progress than those who don't. So that's sort of my first takeaway. The second, uh, you know, you mentioned that 90% of the leaderboard utilities are engaged in integrated distribution planning compared to 46% of all the respondents. So my summary on that is that these leaders are addressing the transformation comprehensively across the organization through changes to processes, programs, and structures that will accelerate clean energy adoption. So that integrated distribution planning is an example of a process change, uh, but I think those who are farthest ahead in the transition, again, are addressing these things comprehensively across the organization and making changes. The thing that's hanging me up is that very few of these utilities, even the ones out front, are tying executive compensation to these goals. And that feels to me like a real potential shortcoming because we just... I, I, you know, a lot of um, utility CEOs, I don't know what the breakdown is in terms of age of, of the CEOs of the utilities uh, in the leaderboard, but like they tend to be later stage in their careers. Sure, they understand that the climate threat is important, but they're not as invested in some of those, you know, they, they understand that like, okay, maybe some of these decisions will be made after I, I leave my executive position and tying these outcomes directly to compensation feels like a way to hold people accountable today and not pass the buck to the next executive who takes over the utility. Absolutely agree. And that that was one of our recommendations coming out of the report is that we we want to see that happen more often in in the utility industry. And, and there are there are I think it is a it is it's coming. We're beginning to see it happen. It, there are not a lot of utilities yet, but there are a handful that have done that, including uh, Southern Company, right? They're not on the leaderboard, uh, but Southern Company is one of the few utilities that actually has made a direct connection between executive compensation and carbon reduction. So it, it's beginning to happen, And but agree, we, we need to see much more of that. Yeah, I reached out and spoke to a couple of the folks on the leaderboard, and um Patty Poppy, I have known for a while since she was at Consumers and she invited Jigger and me out to have a really spicy conversation uh, with she was in her red cowboy boots and we were discussing Purpa, which it got hot pretty quickly in the room. <laughs> uh, but it was great. And you know, what she Patty did is the former CEO of Consumers yeah, and now cons- the CEO of PG&E. Right. So at Consumers, here she was in the Midwest, which she describes as, you know, not as really hit in the face by climate change as other parts of the country, certainly. You know, they had a lot of climate doubters. You could tell she was really pulling her utility along and trying to be a leader and and closing coal plants. I mean, she got them on an amazing path. And I think she did it in a very inclusive way at her utility. I was a great admirer of hers. And then when she was tapped to be CEO of Pacific Gas and Electric in California, you know, just getting a note back from her was really fun because it seems like here she is now in a state that is all in on climate. She has so much freedom to do what she wants. Of course, it's in a very different place and it's much more of an of an actual emergency and crisis situation. But it seems like she's she has a little bit freer ability to get a lot more done. It's just a space where 
they're doubling down on innovation and she's able to take advantage of that. What was interesting to me was that she really sees electric vehicles. And I, I've known for a while that you know, electric vehicles are kind of the, it's the new load. <laughs> but but what she was talking about was really how electric vehicles are going to be like a new way to manage the grid. So a new way to manage peak demand, a new way to decarbonize, to lower the cost of electrification um, holistically by using electric vehicle services. And so she sees that as a really big part of the solution, including for those public safety power shutoffs that they have to have because of wildfires in California. So it's really interesting to hear those points from her. I want to talk about Patty for another second, because I wonder how many Patties are out there, Julia, in this space. I, I interviewed, I might have mentioned this on a previous show. I interviewed her maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago now, when consumers had announced their coal phase out. They have a lot of aging coal plants around the Midwest, and they had announced that they're going to close all their, their aging coal plants. And Patty described how she came to that conclusion and had embraced renewable energy while at consumers because she didn't start out as a as an executive who cared that much about climate change. She was actually a climate skeptic and she brought together a bunch of scientists and engineers and experts and talked through the problem and then came to realize that it was a threat and that there was a transformation happening and that these dual factors needed to advance her decision making. And now she's at PG&E and really thinking even more progressively about how to implement these solutions. And now you have this whole group of ut utility executives who are transforming as fast as they can within the confines of their utilities because they're, they see the, the, the climate threat. So I wonder, like, Patty Poppy, does her, is her experience indicative of the kind of transformation you're seeing with some of these other executives? Well, first, let me say I love Patty. She she is unique. I, <laughs> Catherine and I, as we were we were emailing with her this week, her email signature when you know her email closing is not regards best wishes. It is leading with love. How many utility CEOs end their emails? Then that's her standard, leading with love. I mean, what a wonderful person Patty is. I just, you know, I just have to say that. Like, I have so much respect for her as a person. But I do think she's indicative of, of where the industry is headed. And it actually ties what you were saying, Stephen, about Patty's approach and how she got to the place she's at in terms of understanding the transformation and why it needs to happen ties exactly into the sort of the third point I wanted to make about what differentiates the leading utilities from others. And that's that the leading utilities are proactively engaging customers, technology partners, other utilities, regulators, all to build a common understanding and a shared vision. And, and that's what that's what Patty did at consumers. And that's what the, the you know the utility leaders across the board who are being most successful in in accelerating this transition are doing they are out there building common understanding a shared vision so that they have buy-in to the plans and the changes that that need to happen yeah that's super interesting because I also talked to Josh Castengay from uh, Green Mountain Power he is the chief innovation officer and vice president and Mary Powell remember was such a big leader at Green Mountain Power and 
she did create this culture and completely transform it and brought in people and encouraged her own folks to really embrace a transformation for that utility. And she's since left, but that has persisted. And Josh was super excited about this. And and one of the things he mentioned was exactly what you said, Julia, which is like the biggest barrier and problem and concern for them is speed. They just want to move faster and you're trying to make sure that they can transform as quickly as they can while providing cost-effective, reliable power. Yeah. Mary Mary is another executive who who led with love, too. I think Mary and, and Patty are the two utility executives who I've heard talk about love as part of their strategy. And speaking of love and, and, and the lack of love sometimes we give utilities, I mean, like, I, I'm, I have no problem being critical of corporates that are moving slower than they should or people at the top who are making decisions that are not informed by science or they're, you know, fighting clean energy solutions, whatever it is. Um, but I also understand that this transformation happens in different ways at utilities and that there's this sort of internal culture shift that needs to happen within power companies. And and those are, you know, two important forces. And so I wonder how, if you think about the utilities that are transforming right now and what is guiding them along and your approach to working with utilities, how much of this is guided by pressure and anger and um, activist groups and, and and other stakeholders in the regulatory process? And how much of it is kind of soft diplomacy where you're sitting down with the utilities and helping them explore the possibility? What are the most motivational factors for how utility executives make these decisions to hopefully become transformative? So there are a number of, of drivers. And again, they may not all be equally weighted for every utility, but no doubt, you know, some of the biggest drivers that have accelerated things in the past few years, number one is the large customers, right? When you have your biggest customers demanding clean energy from you or else they're going to go get it some other way, that, that, that is a real eye opener that, OK, we, we have to do something differently here. So so certainly, um, you know, all of the, you know, the, the REBA, the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance members, membership, that whole crew is a significant driver in changing utilities perspective. The second I would point to is, is investors, you know, specifically for the investor in utility, obviously. But more and more we are hearing now that utility CEOs are getting calls from their, you know, their largest shareholders saying, hey, what are you doing, right? You, you, this this can't go on this way. This has got to change, and and that's been increasingly happening more and more. Um, you know, and and it's not just activist shareholders. I mean, there are those, and you know, they often talk about they're a little bit of a pain in the butt. But but it's not just those who are sort of put themselves in the activist camp. It is other investors who 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 know this is the right thing to do and know that the utilities need a little bit of pressure to, to get them to accelerate their progress. Another piece to all of this, of course, when you think about all of your customers, it's not just the large customers, but it's the all the residential customers, the smaller commercial customers, all those low-income customers. And Josh from Green Mountain Power had mentioned that you know they really have to pay attention a lot to the low-income customers and make sure that you know, they carve out the same, you know, a certain percentage of any other program that they do to make sure they test it and that it actually works with all of their customers to to ensure that their system will be equitable in addition to carbon free. That's an important point, Catherine. And actually, that was going to be my fourth 
sort of key differentiator with the the leading utilities is that they are truly integrating equity considerations and goals into their efforts across the board related to the clean energy transformation. So, you know, I wanted just to mention one example. So Sacramento Municipal Utility District is one of the, the utilities that made the leaderboard. And one of the things that they've done is they've worked with different stakeholders throughout the community in Sacramento to create what they've called a sustainable communities heat map. And so they now have this heat map that looks at low-income and disadvantaged communities. And now every new program they do, they start by looking at that heat map and figuring out how do they make sure that this new program will benefit those communities that are showing up on that heat map. So that's just one example. Um, Obviously, it goes a lot deeper than that, but a really important piece to this transition and those who are leading. uh, Seattle City Light's another great example. Across the board, equity is the forefront, the first thing they're thinking about with every new thing they're doing. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Aurora Solar. Last year, Aurora brought together 4,000 solar pros from over 15 countries for the Empower Virtual Summit. It's this free one-day event of learning, networking, and inspiration. And this year, the summit is even bigger, with two days of sessions featuring speakers like John Berger, the CEO of Sonova, and Bernadette Del Chiaro, Executive Director of CALSA. You're going to get a front row seat to the high stakes net metering policy battle in California and how it may throw a wrench in the industry's growth. You can also learn how to expand your solar business into new markets like storage, EV charging, and smart controllers and discover the best sales strategies for connecting with customers in a remote and hybrid world. Save your spot for Empower 2021 today at empower.aurorasolar.com energygang or head on over to the show notes and just click there to register. We're also brought to you by NLX. The energy industry is changing quickly. You know that. You listen to this show. And project developers are seeing growing demand as businesses and utilities seek a lot more renewable energy. NLX helps solar partners get more revenue from projects by adding flexible distributed energy assets. NLX installs, maintains, and manages energy storage systems, smart electric vehicle charging systems, and more. NLX's solutions help customers of all sizes use energy smarter. By accessing lucrative grid programs and reducing emissions, you can find out more about how to partner with NLX at nlx.com. That's E-N-E-L-X dot com. We're back to infrastructure. No other industry will be impacted more by Biden's infrastructure push than electric utilities. His trillion-dollar ambitions are going to touch utilities in every conceivable way. A potential clean electricity standard, half a million EV chargers, 30 gigawatts of offshore wind, mass weatherization, a massive expansion in transmission. Annual U.S. demand for renewables could hit 60 gigawatts or more under Biden. So what does that mean for utility planning and their role in helping enable these policies? Julia, what's your general take on where these policy priorities are going to intersect with utilities in the most meaningful ways. No doubt the focus on transmission investment is key. You know, adding more transmission to the system, to the the overall energy system is going to enable the addition of so much more carbon-free electricity. So that is a, a huge, important focus area, which obviously utilities are going to be very integrally involved with. The second piece is on EV charging infrastructure. And again, you know, you 
um, EVs and, and, and getting involved in the transportation electrification space is right in, in the top of the list of what utilities are prioritizing right now. So having a federal focus on EV infrastructure intersects very nicely with the interests of utilities. The third piece where, you know, in my conversations with utilities, but also other stakeholders in the space where there isn't as much of a focus currently that's being read into Biden, the Biden administration's infrastructure plans is the need to continue to modernize the distribution system. So if we think about the really ambitious EV goals, you know, as a specific piece of it, that's going to require a really smart grid, you know, the overused term of a smart grid, but we need the distribution system to be able to handle, not only handle all of those EVs being integrated, but actually utilize them and benefit from them to make the system more efficient and even, you know, potentially to be able to to reduce the amount of transmission investment that may be needed down the road. So I'm hearing, I'm starting to hear a lot of uh, chatter in the industry around a real interest to see um, continued big focus on transmission and EV infrastructure, but an added increased focus also on continuing to modernize the distribution system. And I recognize it gets tricky because the, you know, sort of much of that is in the purview of the states and and the regulators as opposed to the federal government. But there is there are roles, you know, there are many things, especially when it comes to deploying new technologies or newer technologies that aren't as tried and true that often utilities have hard time getting regulatory regulatory approval for. Uh, there is an opportunity for the federal government to provide funding, aka as was done in the, you know in the era uh, with era funding during the Biden administration to help get some of those technologies deployed and proven out. That seems like an important point. So in the Obama era, a lot of that stimulus funding went to smart meters, and because there was so much focus in the industry on the intelligent grid. There, well, that's how people were talking about these these investments. And we're not hearing that as much in this recent round of proposed spending from the Biden administration. Catherine, give us the historical context. Why was there such a focus on the smart grid in the Obama era? And why are we not hearing so much about that right now? Yeah, so I was running Gridwise Alliance then, and I testified before Congress, and we issued a report that was cited in the stimulus bill on the number of jobs that smart grid investment could create. And then the Department of Energy deployed 50-50 cost share, as Julie mentioned, for utilities to be able to deploy a range of technologies. Some of these were synchrophasers to give us more visibility on transmission and distribution lines. Some of them were um, smart meters. And the there were a couple of issues. One is that they were able to buy down the cost of those so that a lot of utilities got to deploy things that they were maybe not going to be able to because they weren't going to be able to get approval from their regulatory commissions and they were able to then. But the other piece is that the Department of Energy was not great about talking about the results of the stimulus and the results of those investments. And I also think that in the end, what's happened with those smart meters isn't what we were kind of hoping for. We were really, the vision was to really make supply and demand side fungible, really allow customer engagement. And I think we're not there yet. I think there are utilities that are farther along with than others, as we talked about in the first segment. But I think 
what Julia mentions as to what is kind of the next step, I think actually the Biden plan has some pieces of that. They just don't specify where that's going to go. So they talk about broadband. I think a key piece of making sure that all of those AMI investments and all the other investments on EVs that the utilities are going to make and that customers are going to make, digitization is crucial to making sure that those all work seamlessly with the rest of the grid. And so I think there are pieces like broadband, there are pieces um, like the accelerator that's going to send a lot of funding to states to be able to really deploy a lot of these distribution level projects, electric vehicle, charging infrastructure, and, and a whole host of other projects. I think you're going to see utilities be able to take advantage of that. They just, it isn't spelled out in the plan how that's going to happen. So I think we will see though that there will be a lot of enabling technologies. And my hope of course, is not just that utilities will be able to take advantage of it, but all these innovators out there that that have some of those solutions will then be able to partner up with the utilities to make sure some of this really happens. This is a helpful lesson for spending going forward. After the massive smart meter rollout, you saw outage response times improve. Utilities were able to to use those smart meters for for that benefit. Um, But we didn't see the kind of home as power plant grid intelligence that a lot of people were talking about that might play out over over the subsequent years. And some of that is related to just incentives and market structure. And so it's not all necessarily just how specific utilities were deploying them. But clearly, the, the advantage of those smart meters were not used, and utilities just didn't have the protocols in place to be able to manage the data coming off those smart meters. So, Julia, what do you think? Are there any lessons learned from that specific rollout that we can apply to the new round of proposed funding that we're talking about today? The thing that comes to mind for me, you know, Catherine mentioned that, you know, the smart meter rollout maybe, you know, really didn't result in in all of the things everyone had hoped for. But but in my mind, I wonder whether that may have been because the rollout was a little bit ahead of its time. Um, You know, as you think about the value of smart meters in making the system be able to more effectively, um, you know, communicate with other devices and really make it much more of a two-way system whether, rather than a one-way system, you know, those technologies are really just now beginning to come to the forefront and really begin to, to see more and more of those things getting in customers' hands and, you know, now really beginning to see AI have a real role in, in our industry. And so part of me just is sort of left wondering, like, yeah, okay, maybe we didn't see the value from smart meters in those first few years, but it feels to me like we're getting to the point where that value is going to begin to really show itself. But at the same time, even meter technology keeps keeps advancing. So, um, you know, I think if we ensure that we're making investments in technologies that aren't going to become obsolete, but rather technologies, you know, like if I think about, you know, Tesla's and the fact that Tesla's now upgrades happen all of the time over the the internet, right? You don't need to get a new Tesla. Your car just updates itself. Well, if, you know, if, if the money that's being put in from the federal government is helping to support technologies and hardware that is enabled by software that can be updated as new things become available, that feels to me like a, um, you know, a, a really 
no regrets move um, in investing in things that will make the grid even smarter and allow customers and the utility be able to, um, again, really fully take advantage of new things as they come to market and ultimately make the system even more, more and more efficient. Final question on this is, how are utilities approaching this? If I were a utility CEO or if I were a utility lobbyist, I would get in my hopefully electric airplane and fly <laughs> to to Washington, D.C. And, and be sitting there telling people that this is a great idea because you can't, you know, we should be electrifying everything. This is fantastic for the electric utility industry. They can invest a lot of money in new kinds of projects that, you know, you can increase demand as we start to electrify other things in our homes and businesses. I would think that they would be lining up to be promoting this agenda. What is the reality of, of that? And how, how are they viewing this set of like pretty ambitious priorities. Well, this could go, this could, you know, we could talk another three hours about the, the, the challenge uh, when we have combined electric and gas utilities and what that means for perspectives on electrification. Very complicated. But, you know, electric utilities are passionate about electrification, uh, not, you know, originally, you know, f focus or starting with the focus on the transportation sector, but increasingly more and more utilities are really trying to figure out what is their role in building electrification. And so, you know, there's a lot of value to that from a utility business standpoint, but also in order to help them meet their carbon reduction targets, they recognize that building electrification is going to be absolutely necessary for them to meet their targets, and therefore they need to work with stakeholders, um, sort of non-traditional stakeholders that in the past they may not have had relationships with to help the buildings sector also electrify. Let's take a look finally at the jobs picture for the U.S. solar industry. There are now 231,000 people employed in solar, and that includes all kinds of workers who devote more than 50% of their time to selling, installing, financing, or designing solar systems. That's a nearly 7% decrease over 2020 thanks to the pandemic. The pandemic hit solar jobs hard at first, but when lockdowns lifted, they bounced back. The market today, though, looks a little different in both positive and negative ways. So let's explore all those ways that solar employment trends are shaping up in this post-pandemic world. Catherine, what are some of the high-level figures on America's solar employment? Yeah, so interestingly, the solar industry workforce dropped 6.7% in 2020 from 2019. And yet, despite the job loss, the solar industry installed record levels of solar capacity in 2020. And so there was there was a there's a disengagement of what was actually installed versus the workforce. Employment did decline across all labor categories and in most states. And the pandemic was really responsible for a lot of that job decline. Um, and some companies haven't really fully recovered from those work stoppages, but it looks like they're starting to and they're getting back and it hasn't impacted how much solar is being installed. Um, they're also the industry has become more diverse over time. So that's a really good indicator right there. Um, and over 10% of solar workers are unionized. So um, the solar industry is on a trajectory to reach about 400,000 solar jobs by 2030, but it will actually need to exceed 900,000 workers uh, by 2035 to reach the goals set by President Biden. 
so I thought that the data was really interesting and, and where I found myself sort of spinning my wheels and trying to think through things was I'm trying to reconcile some of the, the data with sort of national trends and data that are COVID specific. And, and so a couple of a couple of places in particular. So one is um, one piece of data in there was that the percentage of females in the in industry increased by 4% in the solar industry. And yet we know, right, it's all over the news that nationally we are seeing women drop out of the workforce in record numbers and really concerning numbers, right? It's really going to set back uh, the gender equality um, picture, you know, if, for years to come. So it was it was it was pleasantly surprising to see that the solar industry actually bucked that national trend. And we saw a growth in the percentage of females um, as opposed to a decline. So that was one notable piece for me. The other thing that I was I haven't really sort of figured out an answer to in my head, but sort of a question was that, you know, so Catherine mentioned that labor productivity is increasing, right? So we saw a decline in jobs, and yet the the installation numbers are up. The capacity increase numbers are up. So I was thinking about, okay, well, you know, when you think about COVID, productivity levels, and so, the, so I saw the stat in Fast Company that reports that producti productivity levels across the U.S. from May to August 2020 were up 5% compared to the same time frame in 2019 as a result of COVID and people working remotely. Now, obviously, that's only relevant to a portion of the solar industry because the people who are out in the field actually doing the construction of the sites, that's different. But for the portion of the solar industry who are people who are sales or you know other back office functions, leadership, um, marketing, all of those functions, it, it would make sense that their productivity has increased because that is consistent with the national trend as a result of COVID. So I don't know what to make of that, but those were some of the thoughts that were bouncing around in my head. Yeah, that's interesting. On your on your first point about diversity, um, the Solar Energy Industry Association did a 2019 diversity study, and they showed that, you know, really quickly women went from 14 to 24 percent of the solar workforce over over a few years, and people of color went from seven to 22 percent. So diversity definitely increased. Um, I reached out to Sean Rummery, who was the lead on the Solar Job Census report, to ask him exactly those questions, Julia, about productivity, and he kind of divided it into two categories. One was utility scale. Utility scale solar had an enormous pipeline, just massive numbers of projects they needed to get done. And at first, during COVID, everything shut down completely, so nobody could do anything. But eventually, some of those things that I think you mentioned in the first segment that utilities began to get more efficient because they learned they could do things online that they didn't know they could do online. So building permitting or those project permits um, that had had to be carried in and a lot of labor just spent waiting for the permits to get done. A lot of that stuff got put online, became a lot more automated. So you were able to get that permitting done. And then also on the utility scale side, those workers were deemed as essential. So they got to got back to work pretty quickly. And what happened in that area is, you know, you maybe you'll have somebody who can't come back because their kids are at home, they have to be there with them um, while they're out of school. So then you end up instead of a workforce of four people, you've got three and you just got to get it done because the pipeline's there and you got to figure out we just have to work harder and faster and get 
get it done. So there was some of that productivity gains on the utility side. And then on the residential side, it's super interesting because what you're what you found is that you try you had to figure out some online ways to do things. The customer acquisition on the residential side was always door to door. And that's been the most effective way to do it. Well, they had to figure out how to move everything online. Good news is everybody was online. So it was really easy to get to people online. And it was much less labor intensive, much less expensive to do got people engaged very quickly and easily. Um, Also, another thing that was happening to people in residences was that their energy bills were going up and everybody's online, everybody's got everything on and people are starting to realize they've got the online ads, why don't I do solar? And so there was this confluence of, you know, let's make sure that we improve our own situation residentially and be able to do something a little more efficient on the customer acquisition side. So they didn't kind of anticipate that this was going to happen. It was a really interesting offshoot of what happened with COVID on, you know, with the smaller scale projects, especially residential. And and what remains to be seen is if that will persist, if they'll go back to doing customer acquisition door to door, or if they will continue to do more online outreach. So we'll just have to see what happens. That's a really good accounting of the factors at play here. And ultimately, I think that shows that the the dip we saw is potentially not a bad thing because that labor productivity means that it, you're going to reduce um, customer acquisition costs. You're probably reducing cumulative emissions a bit if you're not doing truck rolls and having to visit people and go door to door. And ultimately, they, that could be a good thing. But if we're looking at you know, overall volume of jobs increasing to say 800, 900,000 under the the Biden policies, that labor labor productivity might shave off some jobs, but it it does a lot of good in shaving pennies off of the overall cost of an installation as well. So kind of mixed, mixed, mixed benefits there. Absolutely. And one of the things Sean mentioned is that, you know, when you look at the workforce that is going to be needed to meet those goals, it's not just strictly solar, but it's solar plus. It's all the storage that's going to be paired with solar. It's all of those systems that are going to be combined. And and one of the issues the industry is going to have is really a workforce deficit. They really need many more folks who are, you know, after high school deciding to spend those four years being trained as electricians. Um, and these are good jobs. So I think one of the things we're going to have to keep in mind is making sure that there's a workforce pipeline in addition to the project pipeline. And I know that's a big focus for DOE right now as well as is figuring out that because, yeah, n- no doubt there already companies in the industry are feeling very hard pressed to find the workforce that they need. And that challenge is only going to grow as time goes on. It is time for our free electrons. Julia. What is keeping your attention? What is interesting to you? What are you reading about? What are you thinking about? What's your free electron? So shockingly, mine comes in the form of an email from my mother-in-law, which I never in a million years would have thought I would be saying. So my mother-in-law recently bought a house in a retirement community in Florida. And so she emailed me a few weeks ago to say, hey, check out this thing that's happening in my community that I had no idea about. And it turns out that in so she she bought in one of the first sort of units, this one's first sections of her community that was built. So they're now building out the other sections. One of the other sections that they're building out 
is uh, going to, well, every house is going to have solar plus storage. And in the community, they will also have community solar and storage. And the entire community will be a microgrid. Uh, it's a partnership between Lennar, which is one of the biggest home builders in the country, Metro Places, which is a community developer, um, and then the technology company is Amera Technologies. So these three entities are partnering, and this is their first community. Again, it's not it's not just a community microgrid, but each house has its own solar and storage, plus the community itself is a microgrid. Super cool. So if anybody is looking to retire soon and looking for somewhere to go, or you're looking for to your parents to help them figure out where they should retire to, this it's called the Medley Neighborhood at South Shore Bay. The whole thing, the system, all of the technology is owned, operated, and maintained by Tampa Electric, the local utility. I love this trend. I know, you know, Lennar and KB Homes and some other major home builders have been doing a lot in integrating solar into new home construction. And the fact that we're now talking about solar and batteries and networking these buildings together into a microgrid is is super exciting. And and related to that, for, for those listening who are interested in microgrids and, and all of other things, I did also want to just mention that uh, the, sh- the trade show that SIPA and SIA co-own, which is now under the, the umbrella brand of North America Smart Energy Week, but many listeners may know as Solar Power International, is happening in person in September in New Orleans. So we are so excited about that. And again, you know, I connect that to the to the microgrid story and my mother-in-law because increasingly what's at the show is, you know, a lot of solar, but also a lot of other stuff. You know, we have a huge component of the show that's Energy Storage International. We have a smart energy and microgrid marketplace. We've got hydrogen and fuel cells, and obviously hydrogen uh, is going to be an increasingly important part of our industry going forward. We've added an EV component, so there will be a lot of EV charging infrastructure stuff there. So just really excited after a very, very long secluded uh, pandemic experience that at least a portion of our industry is going to be getting back together in person in the fall. Catherine, what's your free electron? Yeah, so there's a song by Robin and Linda Williams called Arizona, where the chorus goes, we don't hear much news from Arizona. Well, we got news from Arizona. Um, I heard from Autumn Johnson, who messaged me on LinkedIn. She's an advocate with Western Resource Advocates. And she gave me a little bit of an update. We've talked about Arizona a lot, the ups and downs and ins and outs, and how Last year, they had decided on 100% decarbonization by 2050 with some with some pretty good targets, 50% by 2032, 75% by 2040. Um, so they really had some hard standards. This was a standard that was going to be set. And Arizona Public Service supported. The utility was on the board. On board. 300 to 400 groups were aligned. This was a big deal. Well, they had a new... Um, commissioner who became the chair, Leah Marquez Peterson, who was new as her first stint in public service at all. And she had run on a decarbonization platform. Well, lo and behold, a couple of things happened. One is that there were several attempts in the state legislature to preempt these state energy rules. Because remember, they had to go through one more vote to make these rule f- rules final for the standard of decarbonization. 
those failed. They they were able to beat back most of those attacks um, on the state energy rules. But unfortunately, they desi- they died at the commission because one of the other Republicans offered an amendment that would, instead of making these a standard, would make them goals only. And what happened was they couldn't get the Democrats to go along with that because they really wanted the standard. And so it failed. They couldn't get enough votes uh, for that. This was three years in the working. Um, so because of that, the overall rule didn't pass. Um, it just, uh, everything kind of fell apart, very sadly. Um, there has been uh, another one of the commissioners, a Democrat, has actually moved for reconcil- for reconsideration of the rules. So there is a tiny glimmer of hope that this could be um, kind of relitigated uh, at the commission. Um, it's too bad because you know, the the chair had run on decarbonization. This was something that the state has been very supportive of with all these state stakeholder groups. The utility was on the board. And so it would be really tragic if we couldn't get this over the finish line. Yeah, this is a reminder that when we see big stories about ambitious goals in states or with big companies, there's a lot more that than meets the eye. Um, but I'll, I'll go to my final, uh, My Free Electron is also a state level story and is in Wyoming. Uh, Wyoming is of course uh, a state that has a lot of wind resources, but also a lot of coal and supplies nearly 40% of America's coal. And a new state law being considered there that's backed by Wyoming's, Wyoming's governor would set up a, a multi-million dollar fund to sue other states that are no longer buying Wyoming's coal. And um, as far as I can tell, just from the articles that I've read, I don't think that that will hold up. Uh, you know, it is possible to sue a state if they are explicitly banning a product from your state. But if a state just says, hey, we're not buying coal in general, and that happens to be Wyoming coal, it's it's not clear that you can actually sue over that. But it's it, yet more indication that some of these states, even though coal jobs are just a fraction of actual solar jobs or wind jobs around the country, they're going to dig in and they're going to do their citizens and their industries a disservice by not helping them make this transition. So as we get deeper into this transition, we're probably going to see... Um, more policies like this going forward. And um, Wyoming is not setting itself up well. Well, that's the end of the show. Julia Hamm, the president and CEO of SEPA. Thank you so much for being here. It was really good to see you again. It was a blast, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll provide a link to that utility transformation report in the show notes. Catherine, good to see you. Yeah, it was really fun. We had more than 50% women on this show. (laughs) This is a production of Postscript Audio. You can catch us on social media, send us your uh, topics, things you want us to discuss, talk about this show in particular. Let us know your thoughts. And of course, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for being here. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. We'll talk to you soon.